0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a vascular and interventional neurologist specializing in stroke talks about how young people are affected by stroke and how the prevalence of strokes in people under age 50 may be rising.
1: You know, there's two ways to look at it. So there's like a genetic predisposition that we each have, and then there are environmental factors that can uh, sort of affect the expression of our genetic predisposition.
0: And A theater professor from Syracuse University and a professor of medicine from Upstate describe what new doctors are learning from a theater program. We are humans taking care of humans. I think that
2: we all go into medicine because we deeply care about helping people, but I do think that along the way, the the trials and tribulations of training and the real work of medicine can make
0: that human interaction a bit more challenging. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical university. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this episode, we'll hear about how new doctors are learning how to polish their communication skills from the world of theater arts through a program involving a theater professor from Syracuse University and a professor of medicine from Upstate. But first, a stroke neurologist tells how the prevalence of strokes in people under 50 is on the rise and the steps you can take to stay healthy. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air the prevalence of strokes in people under 50 is on the rise. And here to talk with us about this is stroke neurologist Dr. Hesham Massoud from Upstate Medical University. So this sounds alarming, probably because I'm a little over 50. Um, why, is, why are strokes on the rise?
1: It's a good question. Um, well, first, thanks for having me. Um, I think... Uh, it's probably a combination of multiple things, as as everything is. Uh, you know, I think it's probably because we're becoming a little bit more sophisticated as a as a in just in terms of public awareness of stroke symptoms, and so more people are probably recognizing the symptoms and, and seeking medical care. We know um, from you know, looking at uh, uh, you know, retrospective data that the younger patients seem to be uh, more at risk for not seeking medical care, probably related to a perception that, "Hey, I'm young, you know, what could this be? It's probably nothing." and then waiting uh, a little bit longer than they should uh, an older patient otherwise would not. Uh, Another thing I think probably plays a role is the conventional risk factors for stroke uh, also occur in younger populations. So it's probably related to, you know, lifestyle uh, and diet choices that we're making as well.
0: Making bad lifestyle and bad diet choices, not not being of good, healthy weight, not eating right.
1: Yeah, and there's, you know, there's two ways to look at it. So there's like a genetic predisposition that we each have, And then there are environmental factors that can uh, sort of affect the expression of our genetic predisposition. So, you know, um, if we are uh, at risk and then we also engage in uh, or lack of exercise and poor diet choices, then we're more likely to develop accelerated uh, uh, disease a process like uh, high blood pressure, cholesterol, Um, you know.
0: So when you say genetic predisposition, not everyone's going to, you know, get their gene genome sequenced, but... If you have uh, vascular issues, or in your family, yeah,
1: cardiac issues, Ca- cardiac issues. Um, so, uh, heart attacks at a young age, strokes at a young age, um, you know, blood clots in the in the legs, um, multiple miscarriages. These are th- these are signals that there might be something uh, going on with uh, different parts that play roles into the possibility of of uh, forming a clot or having a stroke of that variety.
0: So even so, it's uh, people, I think, believe that strokes affect older people. How often do you see strokes in someone under 50? It was like 15%. Okay, so time. it's considerable.
1: Yeah, it's considerable. The, the difference uh, with stroke in the young versus uh, older strokes is, one, when you're you know studying this, the people define stroke in the young a little bit differently um, in terms of where they include the, the low end of the number. So a lot of times they'll be including children in these analyses. Um, but, uh, Which that would be extremely rare. Uh, That would be extremely rare. A lot of times that's diagnosed right after birth and uh, it's related to a series of things. Sometimes it happens inside the uterus, um, um, you know, before birth. So uh, the thing I wanted to talk about in terms of uh, adult stroke in the young patients is that they're ratio of different types. So there are they're two different types of stroke. There's the stroke from not getting enough blood supply from a blockage of an artery of varying sizes, tiny or large. Uh, or it can be as a result of bleeding into the brain from a variety of different uh, problems. In um, typically, when we think of our conventional older stroke patient population, the ratio is four to one, with it being predominantly, you know, strokes from lack of blood flow, eighty percent of the time. Twenty percent of the time, it's a bleed. Um, with uh, stroke in the young, you're more likely to see more bleeds, so the ratio is one to one and a half. So you know, fifty to sixty percent uh, uh, of the cases are uh, bleeds, and that can be things like uh, aneurysms. Um, and other uh, congenital uh, malformations of the arteries and veins that predispose people to bleeding.
0: Which so. one is worse, a stroke from a bleed or a stroke from a clot?
1: Typically, I, I think uh, typically a stroke from the bleed because it can evolve and grow, and uh, there uh, there's associated mass effect to it because it occupies uh, a space uh, in 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 the brain, and we know that the skull is enclosed, so there's nowhere for for uh, things to go except get pushed and that can have a significant consequence. But, you know, uh, strokes are uh, variable based on where the damage is, you know, I think is a big uh, determinant. Um, the other thing to to consider with uh, patients who are younger is their prognosis is significantly different than older patients. And I think it's related to uh, usually... Uh, everything else that's going on with the patient uh, is good, and so they are more likely to not have additional morbidities that would hinder their progress in terms of rehab. Younger patients, uh, they have more uh, plastic brains. We call it neuroplasticity, which means that their brain can sort of move around uh, functions away from damaged areas, and you can see pretty good recovery in younger patients.
0: So they're typically healthier.
1: and Typically healthier, more energy um, and their body is a little bit more flexible to accommodate for the change that a stroke uh, causes.
0: Well, we started out talking about how awareness is better for um, stroke, the signs and symptoms. So I f- let's, let's talk about what those signs and symptoms are and how they may or may not differ in a young person versus yeah. an old person.
1: Yeah. So the, the, the thing about uh, the symptoms of stroke is that the most common symptoms are most common across the board. Uh, so, uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, weakness on one side of the body, face, arm and leg of uh, varying intensities, uh, you know, problems with speech, be it articulation or the production of language, uh, understanding, comprehension, uh, fluency, Um you know, other things like sensory loss on half of the body, you know, the big key thing I I, I tell my patients uh, in terms of stroke symptoms, when we're counseling them about, hey, if this happens, this is what to look out for, uh, is it will be a subtraction of function, a stroke will take away something from you, and it will do it suddenly. And so if suddenly any function that you have goes out, that can be a stroke until proven otherwise. In Younger patients, um, there can be uh, more selective deficits, meaning the deficit can be one that encompasses only a small part of the brain or comes with a migraine or comes with a seizure or comes with a fever or something else uh, that makes it a little bit different or a little bit unusual. Um, Sometimes we'll see the stroke... Uh, In a patient who's had drug uh, use. Uh, So, uh, you know, either a history of a recent drug use. Um, that can expose them to a variety of different things. So, you know, uh, the most uh, common example is cocaine, which can cause the blood pressure to spike and in a susceptible individual that can cross a threshold to damage. Um, It can also cause the arteries to clamp down or spasm, and that can affect the blood flow delivery to a part of the brain, and that can cause a stroke. Um, Intravenous drug use can introduce certain types of bacteria into the bloodstream, and those uh, uh, organisms can seed onto structures in our heart, like our valves. And then, uh, that infection can break off little pieces and that can go downstream up to the brain, uh, and cause strokes. Um, so you see some of these other, um, more unusual, uh, stroke symptoms, uh, and more unusual uh, stroke causes in younger patients.
0: Yet another reason to avoid the drug use, but but one maybe you wouldn't think of. I mean, I wouldn't think of, you know, stroke being a risk for cocaine use, but
1: that's... Yeah, yeah. And and then, you know, I'm I'm sure there are people, uh, there are examples uh, culturally where people have taken cocaine and they've done okay. But, you know, obviously I think it's just rolling the dice and uh, that uh, negative potential exists, you know. Uh, anytime you use. So, uh, uh, you know, previous experience is not a predictor of uh, future.
0: So when a young person is in the emergency room um, for a stroke evaluation, what are the sorts of tests and uh, assessments they can expect?
1: So up upfront, um, you know, we got to establish a therapeutic time window uh, to see if the patient will benefit or is a candidate from uh, for uh, an early therapy. So there, are, there's a protocol that we use that includes uh, head imaging and imaging of the uh, vessels of the head and neck to see, you know, what kind of stroke is this? Uh, how much damage has already been done? Is there a target clot that we can retrieve? Can this patient get a clot busting medication? So that happens for all patients. For younger patients, because we see some of these more uh, unusual causes of stroke, which, you know, a consequence of an infection, a consequence of drug use, a consequence of a structural problem in the heart, a consequence of, uh, you know, the blood being a little thicker, we have additional workup that we do. So, more likely if you're younger to get those, that battery of genetic testing. Uh, more likely to get maybe some uh, fluid analysis of your cerebrospinal fluid to see is your brain having an infection. Is that the reason why? Uh, you know, uh, More likely for us to sort of probe into a drug history uh, and, and kind of consider that as a potential uh, stroke risk. Uh, a lot of it is informed by the pattern of the stroke, which we talked about on our brain scans. Um, but for the most part, if you're a young patient and the conventional causes of stroke are not readily apparent, You'll, you'll get an exhaustive workup that will include looking at the structure of the heart, the rhythm of the heart, your blood, and everything else that we do for regular patients.
0: Now, you mentioned migraine. Um, the if, you, if you're a person who has migraines, does that increase your risk? For yeah, there's
1: an association between migraine and stroke risk, and, and it's unclear exactly how um, the mechanism is implicated. So I've read things about maybe there are transient changes in the caliber of the blood vessel involved when you're having a migraine. And so that can change a uh, blood flow, which can change uh, your threshold for spontaneous clot to form or for the flow to be uh, uh, enough that it's uh, low enough that it causes a, a deficit or a stroke. So um, those are some ideas behind migraines. Um, there, are, There's another cause of stroke that we see in younger patients that that presents with, uh, you know, recurrent, uh, headaches and sometimes they can be pretty severe so much so that uh, we think of that as a, as it being a potential bleed, uh, because of how severe the headache can be. Um, and, and that, you know, can also cause symptoms of stroke. So, um, and that's called, you know, a, a, a syndrome where the arteries constrict and it's typically reversible and it can be associated with certain medications that we take, um, um, and so, you know, th- this idea of headache not being something that you see in strokes, you can, you can see headaches, especially in a younger population. It can be part of uh, the the uh, constellation okay. of symptoms.
0: Um, well, we talked about bleeding versus um, blockages. Is there a difference in the location of the stroke in, a, in young people versus older people?
1: Well, so, you know, if we're going to be talking about, you know, um, the mechanism of stroke that's from a a blockage. In younger patients, it really depends on, on what's going on. So, you know, if it's uh, something that's coming from the heart, uh, then it will probably scatter its burden of clot, uh, across different territories in the brain. And that pattern will tell me something. If it's a problem with a major trunk of a blood vessel and there are tiny little, uh, Uh, perforators, which are just microscopic branches that come off of the trunk, and I see the strokes predominantly in that area, that points to a certain uh, potential cause of uh, of stroke. Um, So there are signals in terms of the cause depending on the pattern of stroke that can point you uh, in in different directions. Uh, for, For younger patients, um, for bleeds, uh, you know, they can be, you know, in the lobe of the brain or they can be in deeper structures. Um, and that can also be in the case for older patients as well. It really kind of depends on what the mechanism is.
0: We'll be right back with more from Dr. Masood about strokes in young people on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with stroke neurologist Dr. Hesham Masood about strokes that are there's there's an increase in strokes in people under age 50. So, can you talk to me about the difference in how a stroke is treated in someone who comes to the hospital who's 50 versus someone who's.
1: 80? So not a big difference in terms of early therapy, thankfully. So there's not a lot of guesswork. Uh, you know, uh, if you're coming in with a stroke of uh, one type, which would benefit from removing a clot or breaking down a clot, then you are a candidate for that regardless of your age. And the things that uh, that come into play are, you know, things that have to do with your uh, brain scan uh, uh, and, and some of the other factors, but not, not age, you know, in fact, it used to be the other end of the spectrum where if you were old, it would be like, well, maybe we're not going to give you this treatment because it carries a risk to it. Um, so there's no big difference now between young and old in terms of, uh, treatment, um, for recurrence of stroke, depending on the cause, it can be a little different. So, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm specifically talking about, um, Uh, Is something called a PFO, which is a a defect in between two chambers of the heart, which typically when it's not present, uh, uh, prevents the blood of the veins from mixing with the bloods of the arteries um, without having gone to the lungs first. And if you have this defect, which one in five people have, called a PFO, then that mixing of venous blood before it reaches the lungs can occur uh, with arterial blood that actually goes to the brain. And what that means is that a clot from the leg can find its way to the brain. And in a young patient, it may be worthwhile to close that PFO with a procedure where you you know, go through the groin and you close it uh, with a device, where in an older patient, you would not benefit from that.
0: So one in five people have this um, PFO heart defect, but they live with it
1: without yeah, Yeah, it typically doesn't have a a huge consequence uh, to it. Uh, And it's not something that we screen patients for. uh, And it's not something uh, that patients uh, who have it should particularly worry that now they're going to have a problem. It just means that if you're a younger patient and you have that PFO, we'll consider closing it, where if you were 50 years older or 30 years older uh, and you had the same scenario and that PFI probably would not close it. So there is a benefit related to the age uh, for recurrence uh, uh, of stroke in terms of re- reducing events.
0: Is it just assumed that someone who's young, their blood vessels are healthier because they, they haven't aged as much as someone who's older?
1: For the most part, yeah. Unless they have a genetic predisposition uh, where their arteries are older, Uh, because of some structural problem or some, uh, you know, uh, uh, genetic uh, predisposition that they have to having uh, defects in their arteries or weaker arteries. You know, one cause of stroke we can see in younger patients is injury to the wall of the artery on the inside. And that can expose the inside of the artery. You know, it has three, there are three walls and the most the innermost wall, if it peels a little bit, then the undersurface of that is something that's gonna clot off. And that clot can be loosely adherent and, and break off and go to the brain, or it can block off that major artery at the, at the point of the tear, and you see that in older, in sorry, in, uh, in younger patients, and it can be a result of trauma, or it can be, um, A genetic predisposition because of a connective tissue disorder or something that's undiagnosed and undifferentiated that, you know, causes their threshold to be a little bit lower. And we can see that sometimes, you know, spontaneous uh, dissections of, of arteries, major arteries going to the brain.
0: Do young people um, do they necessarily have a, a better chance of recovering from a stroke? Yeah,
1: now? yeah, and I think it's it's related to um, some things that are, are are pretty intuitive, you know, younger patients uh, having more energy being more engaged, uh, typically uh, having uh, you know, uh, a brain that is a little bit more plastic. We talked about neuroplasticity uh, and the ability of the brain to sort of uh, rearrange locations of function depending on where the injury is. That's more, uh, there's more ability to do that in a younger patient than in an older patient.
0: Let me ask you a little bit more about risk um, because it seems. I mean, people, we've talked about genetic predisposition, but what about, are there social or economic factors that sort of set someone up to be at higher risk.
1: One thing uh, off the top of my head is obviously access to to high quality primary care, uh, so that you can get ahead of your conventional risk factors for strokes, like the big one being high blood pressure. You know, diabetes, cholesterol, uh, getting smoking cessation counseling. You know, lower social economic status, uh, it, it, you know, is associated with uh, tobacco smoking, uh, and so uh, you know those those are things uh, that you know can can affect your your risk. Um, and then, uh, you know, certain lifestyle, uh, choices depending on, on the environment, you know, with the exposure to the, some of the, the drugs that we had talked about or infection risk.
0: Do you know anything, um, like worldwide, I'm wondering if, if I had a stroke in a, in a developed country, another developed country, would I get similar care, um, are other countries treating stroke and looking at it differently than in America?
1: No, I think, uh, I think for the most part, um, you know, uh, the therapies are being administered. Uh, I think that may, based on the care model, you know, private versus public or, you know, socialized medicine versus private medicine may have some differences, um, uh, you know, in off hours or on uh, the weekends when it comes to the uh, delivery of emergency care. Uh, I think we can, you know, draw some, some uh, parallels to uh, our VA system where, you know, sometimes they'll have to kind of you know, uh, transfer the patient to a higher level academic center for certain things. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, I think the bigger problem probably exists, uh, in, in the, in the, uh, in the second world or third world countries where, uh, we're, you know, we're behind, they're behind on a, a lot of, a lot of things, uh, including, uh, recognition of symptoms, availability of treatments, um. In
0: terms, of, I mean, it seems like we have such high tech um, interventions here,
1: and and also medications.
0: Yeah, I just wonder if they're across yeah. the board.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and it does require a lot of investment, especially for um, one of the treatments that we do for strokes includes uh, having to go to an angiography suite. Uh, that's a million dollar room. Uh, the devices we use to retrieve the clot are very very expensive. Um, the The imaging uh, protocol that we use, so the series of scans that we use to select you for benefit or uh, of, of this procedure just to see if you're a candidate. The, that's expensive software. Um, so yeah, there are lots of resources uh, that are utilized for stroke therapy. The, the great news is is that the treatment effect is incredible. I mean you know, one in two, one in three patients. Uh, the, sorry, you know the, the statistic we use is the number needed to treat, which is how many patients, uh, do you need to treat uh, for you to see the observed benefit, and uh, and for this kind of therapy, it's you know two to three, which is wow, really incredible.
0: Well, let me ask you: getting back to someone in their fifties who has a stroke, um, and and let's say they have a good recovery, um, what is what is their life like after the stroke and after the immediacy of of that, and then they've gone through rehab, I assume.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think there's um, a significant uh, social and economic cost to having a stroke. Um, uh, Obviously, if there's a a residual disability, that's going to be more notable. Um, I think there's a psychological impact to having a stroke. Uh, A stroke can be a very dehumanizing condition. Uh, And I think that that um, can can have reverberations later on, uh, well beyond their admission and, and completion of their rehab. And I think, um, we're starting to spend uh, a little bit more uh, time, uh, trying to anticipate patients who are going to have a little bit more of a, uh, rougher time psychologically, you know, post-stroke depression being something that uh, we know is, uh, under, uh, underdiagnosed, uh, likely, uh, and, uh, and we can certainly, uh, you know, try to, uh, you know, have a, a multidisciplinary approach to stroke care.
0: Does it set you up for having um, cardiac issues or other uh, diseases because you've survived a stroke? Does it mean?
1: No, I think, you know, typically uh, strokes in the young, it, you know, unless it's not, uh, you know, if it's a stroke from a genetic predisposition, a metabolic problem, you know, something that accelerates you uh, uh, versus someone else, Um, then typically the, that whatever caused the stroke is causing other problems in other organs, you know, so autoimmune, uh, uh, problems, or if you have a blood clotting disorder, then other organs, their blood supply may get clotted off, you know, or you may get clots in the veins or miscarriages or. or or whatever it is, uh, depending on your unique uh, situation. But if it's just a stroke in isolation, uh, and you've excluded all of the other causes of stroke, then the recurrence uh, risk is pretty low. Um, And I I wouldn't think that it would then expose you to some new uh, or, or, or different kind of pathology. Uh, in general, you know, as a population, if you've had a stroke, you're more likely to have a stroke than if you had never had a stroke. But that's because there are typically reasons as to why you had a stroke. But when we exclude all of those reasons, um, then the recurrence risk of a stroke. And I'm thinking in my mind of the, of the young patient where we've worked up everything, found nothing, uh, and maybe they have a PFO and that's about it. Those patients, their recurrent risk uh, of stroke is very low. Very low. Yeah. Well, that's good to know.
0: Now, if you've had a stroke and uh, you've seen a neurologist, are you always going to be seeing that neurologist like every year? Or?
1: Yeah, for stroke care, it depends on what's going on. So, if the stroke was a culmination of known and diagnosed factors uh, that are typically medical factors like high blood pressure, diabetes, smoking, so on and so forth, you know, blood disorders. Um, then you don't need to keep seeing a vascular neurologist. Uh, you may get a longer-term care with a physical medicine and rehab person for, you know, spasticity or con- you know, consequences of the stroke for long-term recovery. Um, the you would need to keep seeing a stroke neurologist if you had something like uh, a disease in the artery or an injury in the artery that needs following up on or a genetic predisposition. Uh, Four strokes, that's a sort of a genetic uh, 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 condition that we follow along. Um, And there are a couple uh, that come to mind that we just follow the patients along and see them yearly. Um, But for the most part, if you've had a stroke and and the cause of the stroke has been uh, determined, you don't need more than one or two follow-up appointments after the hospitalization.
0: So I've been referring to you as a a stroke neurologist, but that sort of simplifies it. Can you explain, you've got an extensive educational background?
1: Yeah, so you know, I, uh, I did a neurology residency. And then uh, for additional training, I did uh, a combined fellowship in vascular neurology and interventional neurology. Uh, so you know, my focus is really, uh, you know, uh, cerebrovascular disease and interventions uh, that can be done with minimally invasive uh, techniques.
0: So your background is the exact type of physician that a person having a stroke would would need. Um, let's again, before we sign off here, go over the signs and symptoms for someone in their fifties that they should not dismiss. You did mention headache, so severe sudden headache would a be a severe
1: sudden onset headache uh, should obviously be evaluated. Um, for conventional stroke uh, symptoms, it's, you know, um, a sudden uh, subtraction of function. So, you know, suddenly I can't move my hand. suddenly I can't move my arms, suddenly I can't move my legs, suddenly I can't talk, suddenly my smile is asymmetric, suddenly I can't see out of one eye or off of the right or the left of my field of vision, uh, suddenly I can't feel half of my body, suddenly, you know, uh, my balance goes out and I have double vision, suddenly I have double vision, suddenly my, my words are slurring, uh, suddenly I have vertigo. So there are lots of symptoms uh, for stroke. The big thing is that sudden, that word sudden, and subtraction. Uh, the most common symptoms are in that acronym FAST, which is face, arm, speech, and then T is time to call 911. And those are the the most common symptoms of stroke because most strokes are in the front part of the brain circulation, and that's where those things uh, uh, reside. Uh, the back part of the brain uh, can have strokes, but less uh, uh, common, and those symptoms are like the double vision uh, you know the the vertigo symptoms so on and so forth the gait imbalance and those are the ones that I think fast misses out so that's why I, I just tell my patients you know suddenly you can't do something 911 no matter your age no matter your age well this has
0: been very helpful I appreciate the information my guest has been upstate stroke neurologist Dr. Hesham Masood I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show Healthlink on Air Next, on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what new doctors are learning from the theater. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Doctors have a lot to learn in medical school, but when they graduate, they have to be able to use that knowledge to help patients, so they have to be able to communicate with patients. Educators at Upstate have an innovative method for helping new doctors polish their communication skills, and here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to tell about this program is Dr. Stephen Knoll, a professor of medicine at Upstate and the residency program director, along with Stephen Cross, who's a professor of drama at Syracuse University. Thank you for being here, both of you. you. Thank you. The program is called Education Through Theater Arts, and some of the administrators from Upstate gave a presentation about it at the Innovations in Medical Education Conference in Los Angeles recently. Can you tell us how that was received, Dr. Null?
2: Unfortunately, I wasn't able to uh, be present at that, but as you said, we did have representatives from the Department of Medicine and graduate medical education programs here at Upstate, and uh, it was extremely well-received. Many of the programs uh, around the country that saw what was presented we're fascinated that we were able to do something so different because uh, we're fortunate to have this ability to partner with Syracuse University who has a department of theater. Most medical schools don't have that opportunity.
0: And so nearby. Exactly. Like literally almost down the street. But um, Now, we also ought to say resident, what that means. That, that's a doctor who's sure. completed medical school? Or?
2: Right. So a medical student, just four years generally of education, When they finished, they receive their uh, degree, which could be a medical degree, MD, could be a a doctor of osteopathy, DO, and then they enter into postgraduate training, which we call a residency.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about how this program works and how you connected with Dr. Cross.
2: So it actually started with a communications program that I developed, and I've actually spoken on the radio before, uh, called Learning to Talk. Or treat all like kin. That was something I started back in 2008, very much a communications program using standardized patients, a, very, a variety of challenging communication exercises that we do uh, on a yearly basis for approximately now about uh, 110 uh, postgraduates, so residents. And I wanted to do more. And um, really, it was through a variety of sort of circumstances and connections that I was able to uh, finally meet uh, Stephen. And uh, I approached him with just some of my interests. And given his area of expertise, we talked about creating a program that could allow additional learning, but through an entirely different and innovative program. And to be perfectly honest, Stephen has taken this and really has launched it into something pretty spectacular.
0: So uh, Stephen Cross, part of the Department of Drama at Syracuse University with an expertise in movement for actors. And then I also read that you have um, were involved in the Iron Air, Irondale Ensemble Project in Canada. You were the founder and artistic director for. Can you tell us about that?
3: Yeah. Uh, my background before coming to, to work at the Syracuse University Drama Department was pretty much in the kind of work that, that I've been able to do with... Um, Dr. Knoll, uh, it's community engaged theater. So what that means is, um, in the theater world, we're about you know particular you know, it, it, we're, we're about communication. Uh, in the drama department, we're we're about you know taking people, young people, in and uh, helping them to essentially learn how to how to be uh, uh, authentically human on stage in, in a, in a, in to, and to, to read as, as very real, if you will, or truthful um, in an unreal situation. Being on stage is, is, is not reality, it's a, it's a play, right? So what I learned a long time ago, and I didn't invent this, this is, this is something that I picked up through my work uh, with originally the Irondale Ensemble Project in New York City which is the original company, and then I founded a second company in Canada, was um, I learned processes and uh, techniques and principles that, that had to do with, with how we can transfer the skills that we apply to the training of an actor to things that had nothing necessarily to do with theater. So um, uh, interestingly, theater is drawn from real life, uh, and so there is already a corridor, if you will, or a communication, uh, a line of communication between the theater world and real life. And so I guess in a way what we've done uh, with the Irondale Ensemble and then here in this, in, in uh, Syracuse with the Building Company Theater, which is a new, uh, relatively new theater company that I founded here that does the same work, is we just kind of reversed the process. So now we're taking... Theater takes, you know, learning from real life and brings it into the stage. And I guess what we're doing is we're taking things that we've developed in our rehearsal rooms, in our training rooms, in the theater, and we're sending it back down. So, so that we, we found that what it, what you need to become real on the stage, uh, to be present, to be human, to be in the moment, to be listening, to be empathetic, that, that all of that stuff. Uh, you know, we did such a great job in the theater and learning how to train people how to do that uh, in an unreal situation, we found that those same exercises can go right back down the corridor and work with people that aren't necessarily interested in becoming actors, but you, you still have to deal with human beings your whole life, right? So so it's it, it's a lot of life skill development, I think, is, is a way that, it, I think that's, that's what we've done is we've found an innovative way to help people develop, nurture, um, enrich—you know—their life skills.
0: And so it's not—it's not that you're teaching doctors to act a certain way. You're just pulling out of them their authentic.
3: Exactly. Beast. Exactly. That's great. Yeah. Exactly. It's already there. It's just part and parcel of being human. The demands of being a resident, uh, and which which I only can I only know about secondhand because I've never been through it, but. You know those demands, uh, like any profession, maybe more so in the residency program, given given um, you know the frontline work that that medicine is is involved in, the sort of boots on the ground, first responder work, the stresses involved with that. Uh, it can, you know, it can it can create barriers between you and and your natural abilities. So we're we're hoping that the theater work can help, um, you know, open those barriers up, create create openings and.
0: Well, let me get back to medical school and ask Dr. Knoll um, why is this part of graduate medical training? Because it it doesn't sound like it would be, you know, a logical thing to include in medical skills. But so why is it part of the uh, training here? Well,
2: so it's it is not it's not a mandate that we do something like this. So this was really something that is, I would say, something I'm very much passionate about. Uh, communication is paramount. We we are humans taking care of humans. And I think um, over generations, we've been educated on being wonderful scientists. I think that we're, as a whole, very bright. Uh, I think that we all go into medicine because we deeply care about helping people. But I do think that along the way, the the trials and tribulations of training and the real work of medicine can make that human interaction a bit more challenging. And this is an opportunity to really bring back that human interaction during one of the most difficult times in your medical training. And if you can do that now, learn that skill now, become authentic now, the likelihood is that's going to be continued, hopefully even improved further because medicine is lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. And so that's to, that to me is why it's so vital that we do this while we're young in our profession rather than ignoring it altogether.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Stephen Cross, a professor of drama from Syracuse University, and Dr. Stephen Knoll, a professor of medicine at Upstate and the residency program director. What makes communication such a challenge it shouldn't that be like a natural thing for people why is it why are there challenges to communicating
3: i think communication it's interesting that the dr noel spoke about lifelong learning i think communication is one of those things that we tend to take for granted and communication the spoken word itself is of course just one very small part of right um, and and in fact uh, i would go so far as to say that our our uh, socially certainly politically we're, we're dominated by those who are good word smites, you know people that can can put together sentences and construct arguments, etc. Um, so but that level of communication which which I think dominates um, it has has not necessarily anything to do with the physical or emotional uh, the, the, the overall human being right? Um, and there are whole whole segments of our society. Who uh, have not necessarily either—that's not how they communicate at best. You know, lots of us are are are, are more physical. You know, dancers dance and and singers sing and and artists, visual artists, paint and construct things, etc. So the modes of communication are, are throughout human history and certainly today are are, are myriad. Uh, but uh, in 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 today's world there is there's a kind of a hierarchy and and we, if we get channeled in one di- in one direction if it becomes just the spoken word if it becomes just sort of the internet language then only a few people are going to be able to dominate that or feel comfortable in that world of communication and so then a lot of the other folks or even the parts of us um you know that that we want to use to communicate uh, uh we we don't we don't exercise them so that they remain kind of dormant or um, what's the medical phrase for hytrophy, for something that doesn't get used. So it sort of falls into disuse or
2: atrophy, a- yes. atrophy. Thank you. Yep. Sorry.
3: Right, right, right. Atrophy that, that uh, I, I think that's what happens with communication. I think, I think we kind of get, we kind of get one part of us is really good at it. It's like my son, uh, I didn't grow up with, with cell phones and stuff and texting. Right. right? So my thumbs are a fifth, you know, or my generational thumbs, my son's thumbs, He's like nineteen. He, <laughs> so there's part of his body that is absolutely activated and alive. He communicates extremely well with this. Other parts, uh, and I won't talk about my son anymore because that won't be fair. But you know, other parts of us we don't exercise and we we don't develop. And I think one of the and and so they they atrophy. And I think one of the things that. The communication work that we that we uh, we go after with with the uh, uh, education through theater arts program, the residents, is to give them access to the to the rest of their of themselves.
0: When so. you uh, when you said the word hierarchy, I thought you were going to talk about you know you've got the physician patient hierarchy, if you will, and what that does to the communication because you're looking. Are you trying to kind of build a two way back and forth? So
2: I'm or- I personally don't subscribe to the hierarchy. I think that is part of the issue as it relates to communication when we think of ourselves as being somehow above those that we care for. We're humans taking care of humans. We certainly, I hope, have the knowledge to be able to provide that care, but knowledge can only go so far. If you can't communicate and you can't Emote a certain type of empathy, you're never going to connect with the, and it's not just as a doctor, I'm in any relationship, right? So I look at the physician patient relationship as a relationship like all other types of relationships. There's trust that has to be developed. And, you know, I, I sort of think about we're sitting here, the three of us having a discussion, and your listeners are hearing it very different than seeing it Hmm. what would your listeners be taking away from the three of us right now if they were also watching this through some type of video watching our hand motions how we connect what what are our facial expressions what they're only getting is our words but inflection in our voice Right. right but they're not seeing my hand motions my smiles that's part of communication
3: the other difficulty picking up on Stephen's point excellent point too about how how the visual versus just the audio uh, how much more there is to take in is and one of the things we work on a lot um uh, and this will be news to steve because <laughs> he hasn't actually been able to come in and, and view these because uh, well we just we just figured that, that that it's probably easier for the residents yeah to i feel, chose
2: not to it sounds odd yeah. i just chose Probably better for me to not be there because I don't want them to feel a pressure to sure. do something. Right. Let and, them be free.
3: And that call, I think, is is absolutely appropriate. Um, we work a lot on being present. So going back to your question about communication difficulties is it's not only that the people who are listening to this program are are. Are only hearing it not seeing it it's also that they've got a hundred thousand things on their mind one of the things that I found and uh, Steve can correct me on this is I feel that residents are often feeling like they have to get to a right answer they kind of have to somehow hear what's going on and come to some kind of a conclusion or a diagnostic kind of some kind of a result um, which can take you out of the present So it means that you are not actually seeing and hearing and experiencing what's really happening to you right now. You're there, but you're ahead someplace else. So it's sort of a a line in the theater about, you know, how joyful it is when we can actually get our minds and our bodies in the same place at the same time. Mm So so uh, I think that's a hindrance to communication.
0: Well, there's certainly challenges in medicine with uh, here you are as a physician having to talk with a patient potentially about something you know devastating or a crisis that you're having to get them through. That has to add to all of that as well, right? Yeah. Agreed. And then not to mention the language of medicine, which many patients can't understand some of the words doctors use.
2: And that's some of the work that we do in our other communications program, the Learning to Talk program, is really addressing what you're talking about. It's, it's, we, we have a language. That's not a language that's necessarily understood by all. We need to speak their language, not expect that they understand ours.
0: Well, let me ask you, I was going to say, are there physical things a doctor can do to improve their communication. And one of the things maybe, you know, do you talk about, you know, the white coat and what that does to the relationship? Is that useful? Is it good?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we work with physical uh, presence to use that word again. Uh, so when, when uh, the, the residents, when they first started coming down to the theater um, and I guess this is word of mouth sort of filters through the the house staff, but they would show up essentially dressed with white coats and stethoscopes and pagers, and they look like a team of doctors. And then slowly, we encouraged them to divest themselves of that stuff, and and they and now they arrive in sneakers, and you know they're essentially a little. Physically present. I mean, uh, they present more relaxed. They they kind of come in and 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 I think it's the culture. I think and which is a really cool thing is is I think that the culture of the theater over the years that we've been doing it in cooperation uh, with in in partnership with Upstate is that there has become a kind of an understanding that this is part of what it is to be a resident at, at Upstate is this this a other look. thing, this theater, right. this right. this feel, right? And that on these mornings you can go and grab a coffee show up at the theater um we begin doing exercises i think i think people still arrive uh for the first time they arrive a little kind of nervous and so they're physically kind of but if pretty soon that drops away because they realize that it is about group it's about group Mm -hmm. work it's about team it's about it's about people supporting one another it's about trust Uh, and it's not about them having to sort of stand up and deliver um all by themselves
2: yep yeah agreed and i think you know it's You hear now a buzzword in medicine is about burnout. You hear that a lot. Um, And you hear about wellness, resilience. I believe that the work that Stephen is doing with the house staff is an opportunity for them to really become more well, if you will, and to develop that resilience because again, they're learning to be authentic and, the stresses, the the trials and tribulations of residency, sort of goes away, right? They they show up relaxed. That's not necessarily the way residency is generally practiced. That's not the way you see it in school. So this is just a, such a unique op- opportunity. Not only helping to develop these lifelong skills, but it's a great way to also promote wellness.
0: Well, if you think about it, most people go into medicine because they want to help people yeah, exactly. genuinely, yeah, exactly. and this. Yeah. You know, and we
3: up. we we often have an opportunity at the end of sessions to just have a little bit of talk back, uh, and that is something that gets said uh, uh, repeatedly. Is you know we're here because we really want to do something on behalf of humankind. You know we, and there there is this other so there's the humanities side of it, and then there's this sort of hard science that kind of right. has to be present because you're dealing with. So so many things, so many procedures, so much understanding, so much knowledge that it's all about you know empirical data. This is what the body does and doesn't do. And I think this does give them an opportunity to to exercise that other side of themselves. And and it's interesting how many of them actually have a background in the arts, as mm. as as students in high school or or maybe even undergrad that they were participating in plays or music or a lot of dance. Um, and I just want to take a moment to to make it clear that not every teaching hospital or university hospital would understand the value of this. So I really want to make sure that, you know, that I say thank you to Stephen, because, um, you know, it's the arts aren't always embraced in this way in terms of, you know, what the value that they add to other disciplines.
0: Well, we've talked about uh, what the physicians are learning, but what about the patient? Are there things that either of you can recommend that he or she do to improve their communication with their doctor? I think that's an
2: excellent question. And I'm not sure that I have the right answer at the tip of my tongue. I will tell you, I think that the standardized patients that we have through our standardized program, it's an opportunity for those individuals who are patients just like all of us to practice the skill of being the patient, right? And the communication with the learners. So I would, I would argue that yes, by involving yourself in the education of the trainees probably is going to help to make you also more understanding of what it is that the docs are going through. Mm-hmm and probably help you to then relate better to your physician moving forward. But that's just an initial thought. I'd have to give it a lot more thought to uh, give you a better answer.
3: I would certainly support that. Uh, I I am a patient often, and I I recognize that I only go to see my doctor when I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm.
0: You know what I mean? I don't hang
3: out with my doctor any other time. I don't get to see my doctor throw a Frisbee. I don't get to see my doctor, you know, play with their dog. I don't get to see my doctor anything except when I'm in trouble. So uh, I have over the last several years working with these residents have actually, on uh, one or two instances, I've been in an examining room waiting for, you know, the, the, the doctor to arrive and one of the residents has walked in. Uh, and uh, I, it's, it's always causes me to, to go, okay, right. Yeah, that's right. So these people do this too. Okay. So, but, but what, it, what it causes me to understand is that as a patient, I am illiterate. In terms of what it is that a resident goes through, and what a, what a doctor has to be, and the fact that that there is a human being standing there in front of me, and that the human being is doing the best that they can to make sure that I am comfortable being looked after, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's an excellent question, and and uh, uh, you know, it's probably some somewhere in there. There's more work that can be done somehow yeah. to to bridge that gap. Yeah, you know, one of the programs that we're involved in that has grown out of it of the EDA program, the ETTA program, is, is work that we do at the VA yep. where we were brought in, uh, again, you know, thanks to Upstate's um, um, vision to help bridge the gap between residents who rotate through the, the Veterans Administration Hospital. Many, if not most, of the veterans hospitals in the U.S. are teaching hospitals or part of a teaching program. Um, and, you know, the veterans are generally older. I mm-hmm. mean, by at least 30, 40 years than the residents. So there's that difference. They also have a military culture, which is a kind of specific culture mm-hmm. when you start to research into it, how people feel about having been part of the military, how they, um, you know, how they feel about you know, the practice of medicine. So, um, you know, w- that program is specifically about helping uh, residents understand their patients better. Uh, we haven't yet moved to the point where we're working with the patients so that they understand the resident better. Yeah. But it's certainly part of the. It's part of what we talk to residents about is is that, is is to accept and understand that there is a difference here, a gap, and that if you're struggling with that gap, it's it's kind of natural to struggle with that. It's not sure. something that you automatically are going to be able to to understand or to solve. You know, it's a real thing.
0: Yeah. Well, sort of on the horizon, we hear a little bit about artificial intelligence and the increasing role that it's going to play in all of our lives and in medicine. And so I wondered if either of you think about, you know, how to make sure humanity is part of AI.
3: Yeah. That-
0: I,
2: think it ha- I think it has to. Be. I, there was just a story, I think, uh, last week, major news about uh, – I'm sure a very good physician who had to connect with a patient via tele to deliver news. And the physician may have done an excellent job in delivering the news, but at the end of the day, the physician wasn't.
0: Wasn't present. present. They were. And that
2: was really the crux of that article: was how was that leaving the patient? Right? So there was no intent. It was we're busy, we're trying to do good work. I'm sure the individual delivered the news beautifully, but at the end of the day, that's where that human touch, that connection is so vital, and I am skeptical. I'm very practical. Yeah, I mean, we have to embrace technology. It's the reality of what we do, and it definitely helps. Sometimes it hurts, and I'm concerned if we allow AI become our means of communication. I don't think that it's ever going to be able to become fully human, which is what we're trying to teach, the importance of being human.
0: If we have a, hey, Alexa, what's my diagnosis moment, Uh, that's... At
2: least my um, based on my uh, my workings with Alexa at home, I doubt it'll provide any answer of any value. Yeah.
3: <laughs> he might get an ESPN <laughs> kind yes, of basketball true. stat, you know.
0: Well, we're early in the stages <laughs> of this true. development, but there's you know people are talking about this in terms of like the medical future and how that you know what this what role that's going to play in medicine. Yeah. So yeah,
3: I, I don't I don't have a uh, I mean my thoughts echo what Steve says. I, I, I suppose moderation and balance. You know, that that mm-hmm. some some areas technology is going to be better than yep. than than the human presence and the human touch and in other areas technology is going to fail miserably. Yep. So okay. somewhere in the middle.
0: Well, this has been an interesting discussion. I thank you both. My guests have been Stephen Cross, a professor of drama from Syracuse University, and Dr. Stephen Knoll, a professor of medicine at Upstate and the residency program director. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Poetry often occurs in moments of great drama, but poetry can also be triggered by the most common of objects. Judith H. Montgomery shows us both in her whimsical poem called Pink Eraser. Montgomery's second full-length collection, Litany for Wound and Bloom, is now available from Uttered Chaos Press. Pink Eraser. Foghorns mourn through the kitchen's midnight glass, alerting someone else to the bay's trader currents, or rocks to wreck a boat. And me with nothing but pencil and paper, one worn eraser to rub away insomnia, cancel troubled words or misthought thoughts. It's a comfort to work the pink gum wedge between thumb and finger, whisk away small tails of rind, banish splotch and error. As for cancer and its errors, there's no easy eraser for your body's corrupted letters. Healers offer knife or radiating beams, poison drips a body must elect to fix mistake. Someday, they say, we will be able to reach inside Rub mismatch, repair genes back from mutant fault. Edit them to crisp perfection. No need to flinch at the biopsy needle's urgent click or quail beneath the CT scan's beacon, blinking into treacherous dark, faithful late. Here be monsters, steer clear.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, the use of oral insulin in diabetes. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.